Hi, Matthew here. The Venice Architecture Biennale opens this week, so I thought I'd replay my interview with its curator, Leslie Loca. We recorded our conversation in April of 2022, just after Loco's appointment was announced. Enjoy, and I'll be back with a new episode next week. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the teacher and novelist Leslie Loco, who was recently named as curator of the 2023 Venice Architecture Biennale. Born in Scotland and raised in Ghana, Loco has been influential in academia, where she has worked to reveal the complex relationships between architecture and racial ideology. Her teaching and scholarship is rooted firmly in Africa, where she has established not one, but two new schools of architecture. The first was the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg in 2015, followed by the African Futures Institute in Accra, where she is currently based. She also founded Folio, which is a journal of contemporary African architecture. So it makes sense that Leslie's profile is often framed by her relationship in teaching and organizing. And it's true that in the mainstreaming of Black Lives Matter and the increasing awareness of the need to decolonize curriculums and expand and reconsider the architectural canon, it's teachers like Leslie that we often look to for a framework on how this actually might be achieved. But there's also this other side to Leslie's work that seems at face value totally outside the boundaries of architecture. Leslie is a prolific writer of romance novels, Since 2004, she's written 10 bestsellers, which have been translated into 15 languages. And to me, it was so interesting to talk to Leslie about her approach to writing, which is popular, entertaining, and highly accessible, but often, in this kind of Trojan horse maneuver, brings very challenging issues of race and identity to the reader's attention. Her ability to draw on enticing and unexpected formats to handle these kinds of difficult subjects is really one of the hallmarks of Leslie's work. I reached her in early April 2022. I was in London and she was in Edinburgh, where she was at work on her next novel. So here it is, my conversation with Professor Leslie Loco. So I wanted to start by understanding how you entered architecture initially and then how you left it. Yeah, I mean, I should say that um, it was quite a long-winded approach to architecture because I started off studying Hebrew and Arabic um, at Oxford, didn't like it, and then left and did sociology in the US. And then it was a chance encounter with somebody, actually, because I was thinking, well, you know, what does one do with a degree in sociology? And I thought, well, I might do law um, or child psychology. Those were the two things that were floating around. And I worked Mm. in Los Angeles, um, I, I should say illegally, actually, um, for for some time, for um, I was an office manager for a, a man whose whose um, company photocopied medical records. And one day he said to me, "Would I come and help him choose some countertops for a new venture? He wanted to open a chicken restaurant and a dry cleaners." And because my mother um, had been an art teacher, I knew how to draw, or at least I knew how to draw a perspective. And I I think he must have seen me doodling or something one day, and he said, "Well, can you come and help me?" So we went down to this place, I think it was in Long Beach, California, a, a warehouse, and I started doing a, a very quick perspective sketch for him. And he said, you're mad. Why do you want to study law? You should be an architect. And I suddenly thought, well, yeah, why not? I, mean, I didn't know any architects. <laughs> um, and 
you know, at that time, to, you, in the UK, it didn't matter that you'd done a degree, a degree before, you had to go back to, to year one. So I applied to the Bartlett from LA um, and eventually got in. And I think at the time, I thought I was going to learn something quite deep. You know, I was sort of fed up knowing a little bit about a lot of things. I thought architecture would, would teach me something really profound about one thing. And I remember Stephen Groak and David Dunster were my, um, the, the two people who interviewed me. They've, they've both passed away since. And I think it was Stephen Groak said, if you think that you're going to leave here knowing a lot about one thing, come and talk to me in five years' time. And he passed away before I finished at the Bartlett, unfortunately. But actually, I think he was absolutely right. I, I, I knew less when I left than when I'd started. Um, and I think part of that was to do with wanting intuitively to talk about questions of race and power and identity and not finding an easy space within architecture, especially then. I mean, this is probably nearly 30 years ago. And I actually left before I finished my PhD. I left in 2000 to start writing fiction and I only finished the PhD in, 20, in 2007. So for a time I was doing both fiction and the PhD, which was a bit mad. I want to understand more about this particular moment in your education where you set out to write this book and met what sounds like a kind of barrier um, or um, lack of further inquiry or some kind of obstacle that diverted your attention towards um, becoming a novelist. I just want to, if you could bring us back to that particular moment of, first of all, writing white papers, black marks, then the outcome of that experience and how that led you to, to leave the discipline temporarily. Yeah. I suppose um, I would say it, it began to occur to me probably in second year um, at the Bartlett, where the word culture was being thrown around a lot. And what I understood by culture, I, I couldn't see it reflected in what was being presented to me. So it seemed, it seemed as if there was a very fixed, universal understanding of culture, you know, the kind of canonical texts and the references and the precedents and so on. But I knew that I came from a place that didn't have that reference point and I remember um, maybe it was right at the beginning of second year maybe it was even first year sort of opening up Bannister Fletcher yes. and looking at the tree of architecture and realizing Africa wasn't on it and thinking I remember thinking to myself it's either a deliberate omission or we don't have anything like that um, but but you know I, I grew up in Ghana I mean we did have things like that <laughs> Or we did have a kind of a building and material and a formal culture. So when I first started tentatively talking, it was actually talking about culture, not, not really race. But I understood very quickly in the UK that the only way to talk about my culture would be to talk about it through the lens of race. So in, in Ghana, I could talk about being Ghanaian, but in the UK, I could only talk about being black. And, and they're not the same thing at all. I mean, there's, there's a relationship. And so the more I sort of looked at that area, the more people were encouraging me to look at music or film or literature. And it seems as if constantly the references were, were trying to draw me away from architecture. 
And I remember somebody, an, an archaeologist, um, saying something to me, maybe I was in third year, which eventually became the title, I think, of the first piece that I published, which was an archaeological term called argument from silence, which in archaeology means that you dig somewhere, but just because you don't find anything doesn't mean nothing happened. So I remember mm. he, and I don't remember who it was now, unfortunately, explaining to me that what you're doing in architecture is, is essentially an argument from silence. There is something there, but it just hasn't been, been found yet. And then by the time I got into diploma, sort of the master's level at the Bartlett, I found a much easier home, in a sense, to explore those ideas. You know, the, the, the diploma was, was, was very free. So it was the first time I realised that if something wasn't there, my work could m make it manifest. But there was also quite a lot of... Fear is too strong a word, but um, I think I was quite shy um, in, in, in many cases to come out right and say, look, I'm black and therefore I'm doing this work about being black. There's a lot of ambivalence and I think insecurity about doing that. Um, so it took me quite a while mm. to find the confidence to say... You know, this is not about me personally. Um, and, I, and I think that's the way many people read it, especially then, that, you know, this is about somebody trying to tell her personal story, which which it wasn't. Um, and I think that's in the end why I thought, you know, it's it's too difficult to continuously explain why you're trying to explore something. At some point, you just have to kind of get on with it. And eventually, mm -hmm. I, I just thought architecture is not going to be the... Or, or it was too hard to find the space um, to, to explore freely. And, and mm. fiction seemed to be a much more forgiving space. I mean, the reason why I'm interested in this particular moment, this kind of crossroads early on uh, for you, is that I imagine so many young practitioners and students of architecture are right now experiencing precisely the same yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. Where um, despite... Um, supposed advancements or progressions in the culture of architecture, there's still, and I think this has been accelerated by um, the pandemic as well as um, Black Lives Matter and um, this real concern for equity in the discipline, that it just can't accommodate everyone, or it's just in a way, it's not a big enough house for everyone. And so I'm increasingly hearing architects and students describe ambitions to um, develop careers that are somehow adjacent to architecture, where they have more autonomy or control, which is in a way what you did, except at face value, becoming a novelist seems like um, a very sharp veer away <laughs> from, mm. from architecture, especially the kind of novels that you decided to write. Um, you've described them yourself as <laughs> sex being and shopping. <laughs> <laughs> about exactly about sex and shopping. Mm -hmm. These are blockbuster novels you pick up at the airport. Mm -hmm. um, they're romantic. Mm -hmm. They're thrilling. Um, and I'm I want to I want to know more about what drew you first of all to fiction, but also this particular genre. So, you know, there's a kind of um, off-the-cuff answer to that. Um, and then there's a slightly, I think, more thoughtful answer. So I'll give you the off-the-cuff answer first, which was, mm. it was quite a calculated decision to, to earn some money. 
and I sort of looked around at the genres that, that seemed most likely to earn, um, you know, literary fiction, unless, you know, you're a Zadie Smith or, you know, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to make millions from it. But commercial fiction um, is quite possible to earn, earn a, a really good living. So the first impetus was, was commercial. But I've always been interested in, in beauty and in aesthetics and in seduction, because I understood, I think even as a student, that one way to draw people into towards your work was to not be afraid of beauty, to not be afraid. I think I think Kevin Rowbottom was one of the first people who said to me, if you want to say something radical or something different, understand that seduction will also be a, a, a tool. So I was very keen, I think even as a student, not or, or for people not to see my work through the lens number one of racism um, I'm very interested in race as a creative category not, not I mean it, yes it is political but it's not a it's not a protest category and I've always believed that the imagination is is the most powerful tool that we have so I was I was very determined to to tackle those questions imaginatively not just um, politically or economically or even socially so when I started writing fiction and, and writing these novels, the, the idea of sexual attra attraction in the novel between protagonists for me was a very interesting way to, to, to understand how, how we view the other, what are the kind of um, psychological and emotional and social and political and all of those kinds of things, forces at play, because they're not unlike the same forces that are at play when we deal with space or form or material or, or aesthetics. So I think a lot of people assume that the novels are very, very different. Uh, and actually they're not. For me, it's a very similar topic. It just happens to be a different medium that you test the same kind of ideas about self and other, about here and there, about what it means to be inside and outside and all those, those kinds of things. So for me, it was just a, it was, I think it was just another language. And I've, I've also, I think I've always understood architecture as very narrative-driven. Narrative so the novels were not so... Yeah, they were not so different. You described at some point falling into a rhythm in your writing where, in your words, you were a kind of B, yeah. a B writer, a B-list writer. And because it's because it's a kind of writing that's commercially driven, even though you are dealing with these really potent and complex issues around identity um, and race and um, the way, I guess, we relate to each other and um, define ourselves in relation, um, because it's a, a commercial kind of literature, um, you get locked into a certain pattern. Yeah, yeah. That in order to remain in order for your work to remain lucrative. Yeah. Because it's understood by your audience in a certain way. There's a certain formula to the romance novel um, that you have to adhere to or your agents seem to kind of encourage you to adhere to. And even the way the books are represented, um, I mean, a lot of the covers are almost identical and they feature usually a woman uh, seemingly on vacation on a beach in a sarong uh, <laughs> and there's often no beach or no sarong or no vacation in the novel. No, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> With like a pink sunset or something. Yeah. So um, at some point, it sounds like um, another barrier presented itself with this medium uh, where 
in order to remain a kind of creative um, vessel for you, um, it had to change or it had to, at least for the time being, stop. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, bang on the money. And I mean, I think, um, you know, especially for my for my British publishers, it was such a conundrum. And it's been so interesting because the, the novels have been translated in quite a lot of languages and there's certain markets where they've succeeded and other markets where they, you know, I, I think I got one published in the United States and, you know, that was the end of it. Mm. It seems like it's doing very well in Italy. Is yeah, Italy's a, fair Italy, to say? yeah, Italy's a good market. And Italy's probably be relative to the size of the market. It's probably my best market. And it's kind of interesting because my editor in Italy is Bulgarian by birth, but grew up in Milan. Mm. And she got it immediately. She, she understood what the novels were about and what they were trying to do. And she understood the relationship between the subject matter and, and the genre. And my Italian novels are probably the only ones that I would be seen dead on a plane reading myself. The, the covers are, um, <laughs> yeah. And, but it was also very interesting for me that in territories where class is very kind of strongly present, there was less ability to manoeuvre between genres because the, the kind of class structure is very fixed. So in the UK, it was very, very firmly understood that these were commercial um, fiction, that they had titles that were alliterative, you know, lots of double S's and so on. And lots of the titles had S in them. Or, you know, pink was supposed to sell very well. And there was a very fixed view of who the reader was. And my fan mail, you know, which when I started, there was quite a lot of it, tended to fall into two distinct camps. Probably 5% of the people who read the novels reached out and said... I, I so understand what you're trying to do. 95% of the people wrote back and said, oh, I love, you know, love the, love the sex and shopping, love the exotic locations. Do you know that the 73 bus does not stop on the corner of XYZ? You know, people, you know, people they, they really read you and tell you that, tell you that. Um, and, and I remember saying something about that to, I think it was to one of my editors at the time, um, and she said to me, you're just going to have to accept that there's something slightly Cassandra-like about what you're saying, which is that you're clearly writing for a, an audience that hasn't quite caught up yet. Mm. And this was about 20 years ago, and I, I, I actually really didn't understand what she meant. When I came back from Spitzer, um, you know, after having resigned after Black Lives Matter, um, and I got in touch with my agent, who's still my agent, and she, she said to me, now's the time. You, you need to write again. And it's as if the outside world has suddenly caught up. And I, I guess that's what the person was telling me 20 years ago. But, um, mm. but, but this is still not the right genre for, for its time. Yeah. So, Spitzer, this is uh, the City University of New York yeah. School of Architecture, where you were dean from 2019 to 2020. Um, the term was five years, but um, you left uh, about five months. early uh, <laughs> for a myriad of reasons. Um, but in summary, um, it seemed like there was a profound lack of administrative support um, compounded by um, this kind of perfect storm of administrative stress and the burden, I think, of handling a highly charged and racialized situation at the school as well. You said that leaving that post for you as an act of self-preservation. Um, 
I mean, I don't, in a way, I feel like this, this could be exhausting for you to recount oh, no, I mean, in any I, I, detail, but... It, it, it was, it's very, very quick, and it's, for me, it was very, very clear. And mm. when I said that um, I would have died if I'd stayed there, and, and I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating, um, I mean very simply that wherever you have gender, race, and labor, particularly in the United States, you have a much more complex set of paradigms than, than you would in other places. So for me, the lack of administrative or faculty or collegial support um, simply meant that I perceived it, I'm, you know, I'm the only one who perceived it, people might have had a, a different view on it, that the people would have seen me work myself to death because that's what mm. black women do. So for me, there was just no possibility that I was going to take off that burden. So as, as far as I was concerned, out. This is, this is not what I signed up for. And it wasn't that people came out of their offices and, you know, called me racist slurs. No, I don't mean that at all. I just mean that there's something very deep and problematic um, about the combination of those three things that um, I just didn't feel was my burden to carry. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm conscious we've, we've jumped ahead a little in this chronology. And in yeah, a sorry. Way, I kind of <laughs> want to go... No, 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 it's okay. I want to go back and um, have you talk us through... Um, the moment where you at least put uh, your career as a novelist on hold to re-enter the discipline of architecture? Yes, I, I, I wrote, I think it was 10 or 11 novels, you know, in fairly quick succession for about 10, 12, maybe 13 years. It was usually one novel a year. And I think as you sort of said earlier, at a certain point, I began to get a little bit kind of creatively restless. And the novels sold well, but not well enough that I could kind of rewrite the rules. So I was a, 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 a good solid earner within a certain kind of formula. And after the 10th or the 11th novel, I thought, oh, I want to try something different. And it, it, I just felt there wasn't room to do it. I mean, in the same way that I thought there hadn't been room in architecture to explore certain things. And it was a chance meeting with somebody at a, a, at a university in Holland. And I, you know, I used to s still do little bits and pieces of architectural you know, lecturing or, or giving talks or something, but I, you know, I wasn't employed anywhere. And I was part of this um, conference, I think it was called African Perspectives in, in Delft. And I met someone who then asked me very quickly if I would be an external examiner for a program in South Africa, for a master's program. And I said, yes, I flew out, did the reviews. And then when I got back, he emailed and said, look, we're looking for a, we've got a an opening for a professor, do you know anyone in your networks who might be interested? And I just looked at the email for a few minutes and I thought, oh, why not? So I applied and, and got the job. Um, and then as soon as I landed, or you know, as soon as I started work, I realised that the original job that I'd been hired for, the university or the, or the department, didn't actually have the capacity to, to do. But there was something very interesting happening in South, South Africa at, at that time. There were student protests and blah, blah, blah. So I wasn't hired to start a, a graduate school of architecture, but I took an existing master's program and turned it into something else and did that for five years, but was, again, um, really bedeviled by the lack of administrative support. Um, and when Michael Sorkin um, came calling, I had a very difficult year personally in 2019. My sister died and then a few weeks later, my brother died, which was just, you know, mm. a thunderbolt. And I just thought to myself, you know, if I stay here 18 hours a day, you know, that may be my fate. And so when Michael came calling, I thought, OK, well, you know, move to the States, maybe do one term as dean 
um, and make the kind of philanthropic connections that you need and then come back to Ghana to set up a school. And then, you know, resigning just brought that forward, you know, by four years and six months or whatever it was. Yeah. So just going back to your work um, in Johannesburg, am I right in understanding that you actually did set up the Graduate School yeah, of Architecture? Okay. That's what your job became. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think in the midst of establishing this new program, um, there was a series of student protests, or at least this was in 2015, 2016. So if I've got my time frame wrong please correct me no so i mean i arrived in 2014 and and i was an an associate professor in the department of architecture which had a very very new master's program Mm -hmm. but it was struggling to recruit students i think there were 11 students all white and you know the beginnings of the 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 rumblings of decolonization were already happening i mean this is even before um the roads must fall Mm -hmm. so there was a a kind of move towards you know an opening up of the canon of the curriculum and there was also a real you know a really intense drive to recruit more black students um because many departments i mean architecture has very poor representation um of black students or, or practitioners in south africa so it's this cultural moment of profound yeah. upheaval yeah exactly and yeah you've mentioned elsewhere that the one great achievement of your time at the gsa was your ability to turn the impulse from destruction to production. Yeah. Um, and your ability to somehow work productively with violence. Could you talk more about, I guess, the, the political context of the work you were doing at the GSA and how, in fact, um, you were able to, to turn that impulse away from the destructive forces of uh, the protests themselves into something productive that the school itself was doing. Yeah, I mean, I should say that it, it certainly wasn't only me. Um, I think there were mm. two things that, that happened. One was that um, just out of necessity, many of the tutors were very young. And so they were quite close to their own source of anger and frustration, which which was very interesting because they graduated, but didn't have the the kind of devil-may-care attitude of many of the students whose whose impulse was to burn, let's say, to, to, to tear down. And the, the other thing was that, you know, when I think back to my experience at the Bartlett, particularly in the Master's, the Diploma Programme, the very open-ended nature of the unit system, which meant a small group of students in dialogue with two tutors around specific interests could allow you to explore something. And particularly because you often had a year, sometimes two years, you could afford to get things wrong. You could make wrong moves. You could learn from mistakes, which under a semester system, it's very, very difficult to do. The, you know, you, you start with an idea and then six weeks later, you've got to draw a plan and a section. So the unit system as a methodology really allowed me to find my own voice. So it was a kind of stroke of luck that, you know, the protest happened, the the pressure to come up with a new way of doing things was almost immediate. And I had this ready-made methodology that I knew instinctively would work here because it had worked for me 30 years or 25 years earlier. So that combination of a, a political opening up, very young students, an existing methodology, 
and 25 years of thinking about these things. It, it kind of was a perfect storm in a different way. And when we implemented the unit system, we went overnight from 11 to 52 students. And the university just suddenly woke up and thought, OK, this is a goer. And so I was able to get the funding and the support and to really just drive the programme through. But it was it was always administration that was was the devil. Um, and, you know, it's, it's difficult to fundraise, to teach. And because I had to I mean, I, I ran a unit as well as running the school, as well as doing research, as well as fundraising, as well as picking people up from the airport. It was mad. Oh my God. But um, but in, in some ways it was the only way to do it because no one there had ever been in a unit system before. When you say unit system, I'm sure most listeners will understand what that means. But uh, for those who don't, this is a, a way of structuring our architectural education where there is a heterogeneous mix of tutors, each with their own approach and their own studio, which students can select to participate in. And this was established... I mean, maybe it's not entirely accurate to say, but my understanding of the origins of this type of teaching is um, in the AA with um, yeah. people like Alan like I mean, he, he was the originator the, of it, yeah. This is in the 1970s? 70s, yeah, yeah. So, and it's since, I think, spread across um, the UK and um, North America. And it sounds like you've brought this mode of teaching to Johannesburg as well. Um, yeah. In the kind of re in the in the establishment of the GSA, um, I want to talk more about pedagogy and about new forms of teaching in regards to the African Futures Institute, which mm-hmm. is a, the new mm-hmm. venture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it will be a school, <laughs> but at the end, at the moment, it's, it it's an institute. Yeah. After your tenure at the GSA, you had this, as we discussed, brief. Um, a uh, brief stint um, in the U.S. at uh, CUNY, and following that, um, set out again to establish a new school of architecture, essentially, the African Futures Institute, um, which to me is um, a kind of boggling ambition, regardless of where a new school would be. The fact that one could conceive of building a new school from scratch um, <laughs> is uh, to me overwhelming and also exciting, but mainly overwhelming. Mainly and overwhelming. I wanna... <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think also in the context of um, this particularly fraught moment in our culture where schools are having to rethink the way they teach. And it sounds like instead of working from within an existing institution, yeah. uh, the impulse was f- for you to to start from the beginning again. And I wondered if you could talk me through kind of early thoughts or conversations you've been having about how, in fact, one does this. And also talk more about why, why this new institute is situated in Accra, Ghana. So, I mean, I'm, I'm from Accra. That's where I grew up. Um, and I knew for quite a long time that I would probably eventually go home. So I, I went home in 2000 and two, I think, um, when I got my first novel contract, bought a piece of land, built a house, decided to stay. And I, and I stayed for quite a long time writing. But, you know, Accra is quite a difficult town to write in. That The formula is that people send you a text. If they don't get you, they phone you. If they don't get you, they come mm-hmm. to your house. And if you're not there, they wait for you. So it was quite <laughs> a hard place to, to, to claw away time. I've heard, yeah, you, you write in Edinburgh. Well, you know yeah, you will not yeah, be Yeah, I used to run away to, to Edinburgh all the time to, to do it. I'm, what I'm doing now. Um, yeah. But 
the the GSA, you know, even though there was an existing master's program, I mean, this was a new venture from scratch. It it was had a separate budget. It, you know, it was, it was it was a very new thing. And in some senses, you know, it it wasn't that complex. You know, you start small. You are very clear about what you want to do. You invest quite a lot of time in the kind of branding of the idea. Um, and, you know, you find you find money. I, I quite like fundraising in, in, in many ways. So the GSA was a really good pilot. And when I left Spitzer um, in January 2021, which was last year, I thought to myself, well, you're nearly 60 now. If you don't go home and start this now, you probably won't. And I couldn't imagine gearing up to go back into another institution. I mean, I thought you, you, you'll just go and find the same, same thing. So I was actually in Edinburgh um, and walking around one day and I came across the Edinburgh Futures Institute, which is a new institute that's attached to the University of Edinburgh. And at the moment, it's, it's, it's kind of like a building site, but there, I mean, there are a couple of courses and I suddenly thought, well, I really, really like that name. And I was clear that it wouldn't be a school only because one of the things that was really interesting about the GSA was Johannesburg had quite a small architectural community, but also not a very vibrant architectural culture. You know, it's, it's quite a small community. So people don't critique each other because you're going to wind up sitting at a, you know, at a dinner party with a person that you've, you know, you've poked holes at their project or whatever. So people are very coded about what they say about one another. And the general population, partly because of the racial divide, most architects are white, it's changing a little bit, but not much, um, means that there's a whole swathe of the, the, the population who really have no say in architecture, even though they live in and amongst it. But when we got some funding from a really generous benefactor to set up an international lecture series, I mean, that really was a game changer, I think, for the city, because suddenly every Thursday, you know, there were, Ajay was coming, Bjork Engels, Aravena, I mean, all of these kind of architectural figures that the students there see as much as students anywhere else. And, and that was very interesting for me. So when I thought, okay, we'll start something new in Accra, I thought it should have a public events program, similar to, to what we did at the GSA. There should be a research component and there should be a school. And I never imagined the school being a big school, a, a graduate only school, not more than a hundred students. And the eventual idea was to have about 50% of them from Ghana, 25% from the continent of Africa and 25% international. And Ford Foundation and the Mellon Foundation were absolutely fantastic. I worshipped the ground, you know, both of their leaders walk on. And then suddenly the Biennale um, popped up. Um, and it certainly wasn't on my radar. And so we pivoted away from... And just sorry to step in, you're referring to your your being appointed as, as the curator curator, of the 2023 yeah. Venice yeah. Architecture Biennale. Yeah. So that happened in December last year. So I realized, you know, you can't continue preparing for an academic program with, with this. It's, it's an enormous job. So what we did was pivot the AFI away from the teaching program or the beginnings of it to a research team. So I've now got 10 young African or diasporic researchers who are working with me so part of what they do is directly for the AFI and part of it is to do with the upcoming um, Biennale um, and 
the idea is that when the Biennale is over in November 2023, I will probably collapse for six months and then start the academic programme in August 2024. So that's the mm. kind of tra trajectory. But it will always be small. Um, mm. And in terms of how, maybe it's too early to understand yet how the programme itself will be set up or how it will differentiate itself from these kind of standard Western models. I mean, in part, it's simply to do, it sounds like, with um, the makeup of the student body of demographics. But I imagine there are also um, teaching methodologies or the structure of the curriculum, the format through which uh, it's delivered that you're deliberating on. Yeah. I mean, is it is it too early to to talk about those kinds of ideas? No, not at all. I mean, the, the, the first decision was to make it a non-validated, non-accredited program. So in some senses, it's a, it would be like, I guess, a post-professional program. Um, mm. It is interdisciplinary in the sense that it's not, I mean, it's not only architects will be admitted to the program. And it'll run, it's, uh, certainly in, in its first you know, five-year iteration or as long as I'm around, like a series of, um, I guess you'd call them units, where there's not such a strong distinction between design, history and theory, sustainability, technology. So there really are kind of like laboratory environments for thinking about the future of the discipline. And it's one of the things that, it's one of the things, or one of the equations that has been at the back of my mind, I think probably for about 30 years, is that when I came to architecture as, as a student, the equation or the relationship seemed to be that as a, as an African, as, a, as a, a black person, there was nothing about my culture that was of use to architecture, that, that somehow we were too poor or too corrupt or too chaotic or you know, whatever, the, whatever the tropes were. And now after 30 years, I see this is the complete opposite. I think there's something about the condition of, of the African continent, for one thing, but also the diaspora, um, which is too complex for the for the for the discipline as we see it. I'm not talking about the profession. Mm, absolutely. I mean, this is a this is a line of thought I've heard um, you present in lectures and interviews as well, that that. It's really the discipline itself that is impoverished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's so it is so helpful to uh, to be able to frame the problem that way. But in a sense, the struggle then is how one solves that problem by um, restructuring the discipline, yeah. which is, which is what um, the AFI is is setting out to do. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that that's exactly it. I mean it's it's an opportunity to position. And when I say ourselves, I mean it in a very, very broad way at the kind of center of thought production, not always, you know, as the consumers of it. And to say that there is something rich and meaningful and generous in these histories and experiences and contexts that have been outside of Western canon for so long. And I've said it so many times, I sound like a broken record, but I really do see um, decolonization or decolonizing the curriculum as a gift. It's not a weapon. And so for me, this this addition expands, you know, the discipline as we know it. It doesn't contract it or replace it. Mm. Um, just on that point of decolonization, um, in some of your lectures, you present um, a video of a, a seminar you conducted at the GSA in Johannesburg, which was called Safe Space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I've, I've watched and... Um, 
in a way, it reminds me of other tactics or other, yeah, other tactics or approaches to beginning this pursuit of decolonizing um, the educational system by creating an opportunity for um, students and um, teachers to uh, voice their opinions and insights and critiques and frustrations in a context uh, uh, within which they know they won't be punished or yeah, uh, ostracized, penalized. Yeah. penalized. Um, and watching these seminars, which are structured in a way like a reality TV show, you hired a filmmaker, a f- filmmaker to document these various sessions. And I mean, it's even to the point where you have a soundtrack and all the all the tropes of the reality TV show where the contestants enter and leave a space and the kind of one-to-one interviews. It makes me think of your books, yes. actually, in terms of how, how you find a, a format mm-hmm. for embedding very difficult ideas mm. in a way that... Um, Forgive me for saying this, but goes down easy. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're absolutely spot on there. And I mean... Because I have to say, like, it's still, it's so hard to watch these conversations. I mean, I'm sure, um, you know, speaking from my perspective as a white man, obviously difficult to talk about race uh, in most contexts without putting my finger in it. But I think for anyone sitting in on those meetings or anyone watching... There's so much that would elicit a kind of cringe, depending on who's speaking and about what. It is so uncomfortable to see, but at the same time, you found this kind of vessel for these discussions that that smooths it over and makes it consumable. And I think on first impression, especially an architectural audience, would see that kind of work as being um, lowbrow, for example, or... um, unsophisticated yeah 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 no i 100 and in the same in the same way that maybe um uh, an uninitiated audience would see your novels as being but in fact it is so to me so exciting to to think of these projects both in terms of format and content and i think it's the format that to me is so ingenious for um delivering uh content which is very very difficult to to grapple with so one other point I just want to kind of bring into this part of the discussion is the fact that I've been listening to you talk to uh, students and, and academics in the U.S. You've been there recently. Mm. You um, were a Loeb Fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Design where you delivered a, a lecture last month. Um, you also delivered a lecture at RISD, mm-hmm. um, Rhode Island School of Design. Um, and in these conversations, students will ask you questions. And there are questions that are very difficult for you to understand. Mm. Um, because of, I guess, the ways in which the format yeah. for discussing <laughs> Race. racism and yeah. inequality uh, is so different. Mm. That there's a kind of uh, paralysis, which is then masked by very complex language. Yeah, no, I mean, that in fact the, makes very little sense. The, you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, it's a really, um, a really beautiful kind of um, analysis of the situation. And I think, you know, I, I'll, I'll say 
one thing first and then and then come back very specifically to to the US in in a second but i remember in in south africa at, at the gsa there was a group of black students who i literally couldn't understand anything they said when they talked about their projects it just drifted into it was just babble and after doing a little bit of digging it turned out that there had been a class that those students had taken where a book was given to them i think it's called archi speak archi speak yes and i'm not <laughs> sure exactly what happened in that class but it it seemed to me as if the book was taught as if it was not ironic so the mm-hmm. book is ironic and and in this context i think it was taught as if it was serious and i remember coming away from those four or five students who all were quite gifted so angry because i thought what had happened was that they had been doubly robbed of language mm. and actually there was no in at least in my my view there was no saving them like they'd gone so far <laughs> down that path and, like it was so convoluted and when when we did safe space there was something about the extreme emotions that were being forced to the surface that managed to kind of pierce that veil not for all of them but for some of them and for the first time i think some of them managed to connect anger and shame and guilt and all of these kinds of emotions that are not really supposed to be present in 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 the academy because those are the things that you leave outside and this is what i mean about it being productive if if they were able to take the emotion or or the, or the passion whether that was anger jealousy rage fear whatever it was and use that as the catalyst to ask questions or to to stretch definitions or to pull language apart it it worked if it remained as anger and it came into contact with with situations or or briefs or projects that were all about injustice and anger you you could never get past it it was like a double reinforcement when i got to the states i could see the same frustration in the students and i could hear it in their voices but they were always um what's what corralled into doing projects that were of the same anger that they were trying to grapple with so again mm. they just wound up in this double bind where the more they investigated the angrier they got the less able they were to work the angrier they got and mm. there's a very difficult way i think of talking about a, a race and class and power in the US which let me be careful how i say this there's an there's an aspect to it which is un-american it is unpatriotic to to talk about one's own context in in that way and for many african american or diasporic students if you reveal that anger it's like you leave them with nothing it it's like you're saying not only are you angry at belonging here but if 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 you really investigate that anger there will be nowhere else to belong to so there's a kind of fear attached to it because you want to write yourself both out and into the same history or all the same experiences that you're you're discussing so it's very complex mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i've found that using a vessel whether that's the reality tv show or the sex and shopping novel or the thing that's not like the thing that you're trying to do 
it's not exactly a mm-hmm. Trojan horse, but it, it is a vessel that will carry. Um, it'll carry the the emote, the emotion that that, that mm. must come to the surface. Mm. I think yeah, I think you mm. you said it all already. Yeah. So now that we're on this topic of vessels and of format, I want to I want to talk about the culture of architecture exhibitions. So. As listeners will know, you've been appointed as the curator for the 2023 Venice Architecture Biennale. And you're under, uh, I will say, strict embargo to discuss any details around your involvement yep. in it. And I, so I won't, I won't venture into that at all, but I do want to talk about the culture of exhibitions more broadly mm-hmm. in relation to, first of all, the fact that the exhibition is itself a kind of vessel mm-hmm. for um, producing and disseminating knowledge. Um, There's also a format to the exhibition that we're all quite familiar with, um, which uh, I think recently um, curators have been able to kind of subvert more effectively. Mm -hmm. But I want to understand your attitude towards the exhibition, broadly speaking, Mm -hmm. as it relates to a particular phenomenon that you've often articulated in the talks you've given. And this is the phenomenon of the double consciousness. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you reference W.E.B. Du Bois directly when you talk about a double consciousness, but I mean, it's it's in effect this, this experience um, of always looking at oneself through the eyes of a racist white society. Um, and I think in your in your use of this idea of double consciousness, it's that pressure of the designer or the architect to explore a world in all its depth at the same time you're trying to explain it and so i just want to read there's a passage from a novel by the um, south african novelist uh jam quotesy um can you remind me sorry what the novel is called i'm missing it from my notes elizabeth costello Elizabeth Costello. I just want to read it out because I feel like it very succinctly articulates this experience of double consciousness that you're describing. And of course, you've referenced this quote as well. So the English novel is written in the first place by English people for English people. And that is what makes it the English novel. The Russian novel is written by Russians for Russians. But the African novel is not written by Africans for Africans. African novelists may write about Africa about African experiences, but they seem to be glancing over their shoulders the whole time they write at the foreigners who read them. Whether they like it or not, they have accepted the role of interpreter, interpreting Africa to their readers. To me, this is such a lucid description of the conundrum that a lot of African and diasporic architects and designers also face. And we could look to, let's say, the Serpentine, mm-hmm. for example. You have someone like Jark Engels, who is liberated to yep. um, perform all these formal investigations with new materials. Whereas uh, recently, for example, with uh, Francis Carre or Tatiana Bilbell, um, the, the onus is, seems to be more on interpreting one's cultural background and representing it mm-hmm. to a Western audience. Mm-hmm. And I don't know to what degree um, that decision is um, subconscious or uh, how willingly um, designers like Correa, Bilbao, 
um, generate those kind of pavilions. Carey, I think, was referencing a tree uh, and the sense of community that formed around it in his hometown in Burkina Faso. Yep. Bilbao is referencing in her pavilion um, the domestic Mexican architecture and this kind of breeze block construction. So there, you can see this kind of interpretation mm-hmm. taking place through installations like that, um, where it's the, the foreign architect, in this case, representing their culture back to a Western audience. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on that conundrum and what to you are some possible ways around or out of that struggle. Mm-hmm. In a way, to, to, this is the question you pose, and I just want to put it again out there. The question is, how can you explore a world in all its depth at the same time as you explain it? So I think... Um... And maybe this goes back to what I was saying about the the poverty in the discipline and not the poverty in the context. I think that the conventional tools of of architectural representation, you know, the drawing, the manifesto, the film, you know, the photograph, they can only do so much in the service of that I call it a translation as well as a kind of double consciousness because not only are you aware of being looked at, but you somehow have to do something with that awareness and that awareness seeps into your work, it seeps into the way what you think, the way you make, etc. But rather than see it as, um, or I think I've chosen now, rather than see it as only a problem that I somehow have to overcome... I prefer now to see it as a tactic, and I've spoken about this recently, maybe in the last two or three years, where I see many of the tools that I've been taught less as tools and more as tactics. And the byproduct or the result of constantly thinking tactically is that you become quite strategic. Um, I, I find that, you know, I'm not a management consultant and I certainly didn't. I didn't sign up for leadership roles, but I can also see how the experiences I've had have made it almost impossible to do anything other than lead in some senses. So there's been some, I guess, yeah, there's been a, a kind of expanding or a widening of, of my own um, skill set is, is, is the way I could call it. And it that comes with responsibilities and challenges and drawbacks and all the rest of it, but it really is an amazing gift, I think. And about, I don't know, three or four months ago um, at, the, at the AFI in Accra, we have a, one of the lecture series is called the Pan-African Speaker Series. And we had Issa Diabate, who's from our neighboring country in, in Cote d'Ivoire, and he came over to give a talk. And at some point in the talk, he said, you know, I've recently come to understand that I am no longer the future. And in a way, I feel very much like that, that I'm no longer the future, but that expanded tool set and expanded field that I have operated in most of my life has given me something that's of use to the generation that's coming behind, which is why I think no matter what, no matter how I end up earning my living, 
I think I'm first and foremost a teacher. I mean, that's, or a pedagogue, whatever you want to say. So there is something about this very neat bringing back a full circle in a way. Um, it, it's as if the right tools and the right tactics have combined in the right place to do the right thing. So for that, I can only be really um, appreciative, I think. Um, and, you know, there is, I, I can't remember the phrase it is, that women watch men and men watch women, women watching them or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit similar to double consciousness, but it's this idea that you are always aware of yourself as an object as the same time you're a subject. And that mm. ability to look front and back and side and side and up and down kind of simultaneously you know, for an architect is, 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 is a gift. It's a really, it's a really, it's a really unique way, I think, of, of seeing the world. And I could see it very, very clearly in, in my South African students, particularly black students, that the genius of the school, and it certainly wasn't mine, it was in those young tutors, you know, the Samayas, the Sarahs, the Huda Tayobs, the Thresh Govendas, the, the people who, who started teaching very, very quickly after graduating. The moment they were able to articulate a brief for a student in a way such that the, the knowledge, the experience that that student had that was different from white or middle class or suburban or whatever you want to call it students, that was the moment that the playing field was leveled because suddenly the white students could see that there was something in what the black students were saying that came directly out of their lived experiences that they would have to learn they would have to learn how to do in the same way that black students for so long had been looking at what white students were doing. And this is not to do with race per se. This is much more to do with class and kind of culture. They had to learn that. The minute there was a, a reflexive two-way learning, that's when the, the game opened, I think. Yeah. I just want to ask one more question before I let you go. And it's again to do with this culture of exhibition, which thinking more about it has its roots in um, the the culture of the world's fair in a way. I'm thinking of the Crystal Palace yeah. and how that that endeavor became a kind of cabinet of exotic curiosities. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I'm getting at when I talk about the way that exhibition, um, yeah. yeah, African and diaspora architects now maybe face some pressure where it's whether whether it's subconscious or overt to present their culture as yet another exotic curiosity mm -hmm. and i wonder without speaking directly about the biennale if we can talk about um in in more concrete terms in terms how one goes about dismantling this western system of of representation, which frames mm -hmm. foreignness or otherness in a way that reinforces mm -hmm. um, arguably the dominance of Western culture or reinforces a certain idea of whiteness mm -hmm. um, that, that dismantles that and kind of re reassembles it into a new form. Yeah. This is, of course, in relation to uh, an idea or a quote from the, the theorist Bell Hooks that's been circulated widely, which is that one cannot dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. So tell me more about these other tools, these new tools, uh, which will help you um, reform um, the exhibition culture. And I think 
Also, as I'm saying this, I'm just realizing the unimaginable weight. I'm also just placing <laughs> you <laughs> asking that question. <laughs> as if, as if um, one curator alone can oh, no, even never. begin to do no, that. No, and that's not how it yeah. works at all, no. And I mean, no. No. Um, <laughs> in, a, in a way, it's that, that old conundrum that you can't be outside of history whilst critiquing it. You're inside it, you know, it's, you, you're mm -hmm. inside the thing um, all the time. And I mean, I, I I can't actually say too much about the tools of the exhibition because it, it it'll um, it'll be giving um, a bit of a game away. But I will say this, mm -hmm. which is it's it's just something we put onto our Instagram page this morning. Um, um, we have a, a research project going on called Pinpoint, and mm -hmm. one of the um, one of the, the the images that we're working with um, is. You can probably readers can probably go and look it up. The African Futures Institute on Instagram, but there's um, an an image with a James Baldwin quote, which I think says something like, "Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced." And I think that's very much where I see this phase of of let's call it decolonization, which is that no single event, no single exhibition, no single book person is is going to flip this entirely but what what all of those things do cumulatively is 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 switch the dial just a little bit a little bit a little bit and i really do think that the change happens both incrementally and then suddenly very rapidly i mean if i'm to look back over the past 30 years i would say that is exactly how this has happened and Often you are too close to the event to be able to see it historically. And I suspect that's probably going to be true of many events like new exhibitions, not just the, not just the Biennale. But in five or ten years' time, I think we may be able to look back and see that that was the point at which a pivot did turn. Um, and I think, for me, the, the relationship between you know, carbon and colony is such an interesting one, and it's no surprise in a sense that you know the pandemic and the protests happened simultaneously or almost simultaneously and 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 the the the, the kind of increasing um anxiety about about climate change but also um the increasing threat of of kind of global stability like this this is a real watershed moment in lots of different ways i i think an exhibition at this time, in some ways, will have to speak to those conditions, yeah, for it to have resonance. I think there's a, a wonderful quote, um, it's by one of my favourite writers, Nadine Gordimer, and it's about the relationship between relevance and commitment. And that, you know, the artist, or in, in the widest possible sense of the word, is always working between these two impulses. And, you know, it's it's the pulse that, that goes back and forth between an artist and the society. You know, does this have relevance and do I have the commitment to to to, to put it in, to, to, to bring it into being? Yeah. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. You got great questions. It was really <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. 
Thanks to Leslie Loco. Special thanks this week to Nana Biema Ofusu and Ellis Woodman. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.